Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, September 20th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And this Sunday is September 25th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and today for our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, 5.30 a.m. Thank you, Charles. Our little team is working to be faithful to lectionary your seat that puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, and we hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently. After the leadoff person shares some formative questions, and then in this virtual discussion, we share and we encourage, and we challenge each other. And here are our friends who are joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Charles Willard in Minnesota. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm Don Upton, and I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, which means I get to read this scripture, which is Luke 16, 19 through 31. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, uh, and we'll begin with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in... And at his gate... ...was by his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham... The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, this great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And that's the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, a, a challenging piece, uh, and my uh, my greatest experiences in coming back to this every three years, if not more, has been looking at what is the history, what is the folk history, what is the use of these kinds of stories or fables. So the first question coming at you, Sarah, is uh, I was reading N.T. Wright uh, preparing for this, and he says the story includes an adaptation of a well-known folk tale. And Bill Wallace, who at Palmasia Presbyterian Church taught generations uh, about the lectionary, when he came to this, he would say, this is a fable. Uh, So what are your thoughts, Sarah, on the use of a familiar tale uh, in in that culture and in multicultures, I think, in the ministry of Jesus? And 
what are the limitations and the strengths of the 21st century reader? Sarah? Well, I, I see it as a good use of a common bit of storytelling that will leverage or advance the, the words of Christ or the process that Christ is using to bring people to, um, um, to turning around. Uh, so I see it as a wake-up call, an apocalypse, which gives us the pulling back of a curtain to open our eyes to something we urgently need to see before it's too late, quoting Barbara Rossing in her commentary on this particular passage from September 25, 2016, on um, workingpreacher.org. Um, I personally think that the fable thing works. It's a simple tale that reveals a tremendous truth. It cautions that when we fail to see each other wholly and truly as human beings beloved by God, we do irreputable damage to ourselves and those we love. This fable points to our nature to equate wealth with virtue and poverty with lack of virtue. A story spins this, this particular story spins the story trope a bit by not naming the rich man who might be considered admirable for his wealth, yet invites us to pause and consider the poor man more closely by naming him Lazarus, which means God is my help. So, just the way Jesus tells this story inverts the way people should have regarded these two men in life. I'm quoting Mark Davis there. Uh, interestingly, the blinding power held by the rich man evaporates when he dies. So there's the turn of fortune that fables often provide. Um, discouragingly, though, the rich man still fails to see Lazarus entreating Father Abraham to send him to speak to his relatives, commanding Lazarus to keep working. And um, do we still fail to see the needs of those around us? Yes, I think we do. Do we still have the, the, the ability to, um, to weld power and withhold help? Yes. So the strengths of the story still resonate well in modern times. So I, I think that the, the fable element or the fable convention works beautifully to point out simple truth. So, yes, I agree. And thank you for taking a position. Bill Hall, what about you? What do you think about the use of Yeah, I, I'm focused on your words, limitations and strengths. Uh, and none of us think that what we offer is... Uh, definitive. Briefly, my thoughts. Uh, limitations. Uh, this story, as it is told, is very stark, harsh, uncompromising, disturbing. Um, based on commentaries that I've read, where they almost all of them make a point to say this is not about the afterlife, but about the here and now. So a limitation, Don, is that people could use this simply to talk about the afterlife, about the bad guys getting their due after death. I think it is clear that Jesus means this to speak in the here and now. But a limitation is of any communication that it can be mis misused. I think that limitation leads to one of its strengths. 
when you read this, and none of us on this podcast are reading it for the first time, <laughs> but in imagination, if I've read it for the first time, I would be tempted at first to dismiss it. Oh, that's so exaggerated. That That's obviously uh, a, a made-up story, but it draws you in because it has to do with inequality. It has to do with people seemingly in control, but in fact, uh, eventually they're not. There are so many elements to this that I think speak to uh, every age, including this age. Inequality is still a um, issue now. Um, this may not be an appropriate example, but we've just come through the death of the sovereign in Britain and what I've watched, there's discussions about what's the monarchy like going forward? How do they deal in a country with so much pressing need and yet such almost obscene wealth by the royal family? I'm not getting into that debate. I'm just saying it illustrates that equality, inequality is just <clears throat> as real now as, as it ever was. And I, at least for me, Ultimately, the story is not exaggerated. The inequality is really that uh, that strong. And, for example, I think it graphically shows the interrelatedness of physical poverty and physical illness. Because Lazarus was not just hungry. He had some physical ailment. And I think that's very contemporary, that poverty... Uh, affects the whole person and the whole. Uh, so I would echo Sarah. I think this works powerfully well. I, I agree, and I do remember teachers of the past emphasizing this is a using today's language a multicultural, interfaith, global literary technique that can be passed on and forked and changed based on the circumstances. I like that because I think it says something about our heart and what we want to respond to with literature. So, Sarah, you said apocalypse. Like this, Our literature allows us to go through little apocalypses as fictions so that we can take action today. And this is a, it's a horrible story at the same time. What a gift that we are created to be able to deal with these little apocalypses out of time. So I I like that it's it could be for everybody, and it deals with time and separation as devices. But that's what little stories like this always do, and it's so decisive. You know, at the end, you have to deal with him as permanently separated. Or another example is what would uh, what would a uh, Dickens story be if not round three? Scrooge is dead. He, I mean, that has to be a round three. He's dead. <laughs> of course, he's not. He wakes up, but. That's the little apocalypse. You got to have that third round in there. He's dead. And then he can really respond and think about what he's seeing. Also, everything's in plain view. These kinds of stories, it's not, well, you didn't take another step and walk through a door. You didn't go to the undiscovered country. You didn't, it's like, no, it's right there. It's right in plain view. So you have that to work with. So I'm thinking about uh, the way our culture, so 21st century, I think where it's difficult for us is as an American, how often I hear, folks say, well, hindsight is perfect, which is always an excuse, I think, which is like, well, who's got hindsight? I did the best I could. Who's got hindsight? Well, this torques the whole idea of hindsight. 
It allows us to leap the past and the present and the future in a literary, a fiction form that really allows us to take great action. But, yeah, the American words are, you know, hindsight, uh, you know, is perfect. What can I do? Uh, you know, who has vision of the past? You know, oh, that's easy. I can't go back in time and fix things. I did the best I could. Well, with, with folk tales, with these kinds of fictions, we darn well can. We could be challenged to do it. Uh, and what helps is the field of vision of the rich man is not blind. The rich man can see everything and can apply it to what he's been seeing in his life. How about you, Charles? What do you think about this? I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I, what, I, what I see when I look is I'm watching myself watch, I'm watching myself watch y'all perform. And it's it's um I don't know. I think I mean my my little my little heart inside says, well, now that we hear this, what was the positive outcome of that? What was the positive result? Uh, is there is there is there an, an instance? Or is there a report that the other family members of the rich man um, changed? Their lives were different. Do we have reports that people who read this story said, aha, I get it now, and go back and uh, and, and their and their next encounter with their family? They do, whatever, but we have we have no evidence of that. All we have is a report of failure. Failure of the rich man to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, what he thought he at one point could accomplish to make up for what he had done. And he discovered that it's too old. It's too late. And I don't think that we believe that it's too late for us. Just like I'm sure that the rich man didn't think it was too late for him until he discovered that it was too late for him. And it's, it, but I don't, I don't see what we make of that. I don't see what you know. I don't, I don't see what success is around the corner. What the next man's family did that was different or better. So I'm, I, I continue. I, you know, you get me as. A, Somebody who is in the middle of uh, of, uh, of pressure and distress and uh, uncertainty, and that reflects, you know, that that that's that's the screen through which uh, I interpret and experience these these conversations. Thank you for putting up with me. Well, thank you because I think you're setting the stage for the rest of this conversation. And to that point, let's let's pick out one of the potential takeaways of Bill Hull coming at you. Let's take that challenge from Charles. Is there a call for justice in this passage? I read in the commentators. I think there is. And explain your answer. Is this a call for justice? I think it certainly is. And um, Charles, thank you for your transparency. Um, and maybe to springboard a little from that, I think what you're saying, Charles, illustrates an important point about Scripture and about this passage, 
is that in many ways, it's left open-ended. The parable of the prodigal son ends with the elder brother being invited into the party, but standing outside. We're not told whether or not he went in. I think that's the power of Jesus's style of communication. It's not a Hollywood ending uh, or, you know, where everything falls apart or everything comes together. I think that's part of the power. Yes, Don, to your question, I think it is a powerful call for justice. And briefly, um, I think the details here, again, I mentioned in question one, they are perhaps exaggerated, but not. Uh, The consequences of poverty and inequality cannot be exaggerated. And an element in this story for me, Don, is that the rich man knew Lazarus. He he calls him by name. And he Lazarus sat right outside his door. So physical proximity to need does not guarantee a response, Charles. To your point, you're absolutely right. There is no guarantee that no matter how clear the message is, that someone or an individual will get it. And the impact by the rich on those they they ignore is not an exaggeration. And my final point, Don, is Jesus and likely most of his leaders or listeners knew the Old Testament. Nothing could be clearer in the Old Testament that uh, what is crystal clear from the prophets and others is God's call for justice, love God, love neighbor. There is no mystery as to what God's will is. And so for me, this is clearly a reflect, uh, an invitation to revisit the Old Testament call for justice. Now, Lazarus is uh, in some ways a part of his household, not just part of the community, but, it's, you know, he's getting the scraps. He's in... He's in food casting distance. It's very close, and I always like the, you know, who's my neighbor questions that come to Jesus. And my interpretation of Jesus' answers is take care of what's in plain view. You know, the Good Samaritan isn't out there trying to change systems. <laughs> Good Samaritan passes by somebody and sees them. You know, start with the what's in plain view in your household. Uh, there's, there's, justice starts right there in this gospel. Sarah, what what do you think about this? I think that if we see it as a fable, it could give us permission to not see it as a real opportunity. That would be one of the shortcomings, right? It's like you read a children's book and you go, oh, I love that story. But we never actually apply the story to ourselves and to our lives. I think that's one of the the drawbacks of seeing it as a fable. It gives us permission to disengage. And I I think the story is given to us for a different reason. I think it's designed to be one of those, let's look at how this particular story is rooted in some reality. They have found benches outside homes in wealthy neighborhoods in strange places, right? So, um, we have we find them historically all through the Mediterranean area that it was common to find these benches of repose that were designed for beggars to sit outside these wealthy homes to be, if you will, 
an opportunity to give alms all the time, anytime. And to see the person sitting there as something to be a part of, to to include in your story, include in your life, rather than I overlooked that person. I stepped over that drunk man to get to where I was going, the taxi or the bus or the train. Um, you know, when you go to cities, it's a lot more present with us than it is in our own neighborhoods. And I think um, in in the time that Luke was writing this particular view of Jesus' teaching, it was very common to find people reposing in places where rich people would traffic in an effort to um, receive the alms. And it was a social and moral indictment to do almsgiving. So I think that a couple of things here are working against the rich man who remains unnamed but held a lot of power, is that he failed to do what was what was considered morally just by his by his culture, not by our looking back at this and going, hmm. So I think there's something interesting there that indicts us a little bit. Are we doing what our culture considers appropriate and morally? So uh, I think the the other thing that this text does is it powerfully calls Christians to see all to see the full humanity of all neighbors in such a way that it motivates action in solidarity to yield to the social expectations of the day and provide alms. I'm quoting uh, uh, I think I'm Jennifer V J Piet from Dear Working Preacher from September 2022, um, she, she says this is our, our way of showing the radical love of Christ. Um, Mark Davis points out that Lazarus waits on the bench outside the home and could easily, easily have been taken care of by this rich man with no real dent to his wealth or his enterprises. And yet the, real, the rich man fails to yield to the social expectations of the day and provide alms. Yet, while the rich man fails to help Lazarus, the dogs come and lick his wounds. So the dogs have mercy. The dogs act mercifully, but the rich man does not. I think that's a bigger indictment of modern culture in as much as it was an indictment at that time. So I think there is a call for justice. I think we are asked to see those around us that need assistance and need and 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 have a relationship and understanding of of them um you know if if the rich man had fed Lazarus the rich man had given Lazarus water um if the rich man had 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 decided that he was going to do what even the good samaritan did it would have been more. It would have been more fulfilling of the, the, the way Christ is instructing us to behave. Thank you. But Charles, we're responding to part of your challenge, which is the, the real takeaways. How is this operating? And the discussion is, is this about justice? What are your thoughts? How are we doing? 
Well, I'll probably get in trouble for putting it out this way, but <laughs> I live in a uh, in a old geezer community here in uh, Maple Grove in Minnesota, and I just, I mean, what I pictured in my mind was what might something like this appear to be uh, if it was done right here. What if there was somebody? a place where you could, you know, somebody who had great physical or uh, 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 calorie-producing needs, they could sit outside. And I just, I'm just, I'm just trying to picture in my own mind. I don't have a feeling that the, the, uh, the administration of the building wouldn't be happy with that new uh ornament uh on the uh on the on the on the front uh so i i'm 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 trying to think how it would look in 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 today's life and how we would respond and how i would respond and probably i wouldn't respond too well i'm guessing but i it's 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 hard to tell until you're actually confronted with it and i think the people in these parables that we're reading about it's it's hard for us to understand the the emotions that went through their mind when they passed by Lazarus sitting there at the the curbside. He wasn't. I mean, he he had he had to have been recognized. They couldn't. You, you can't just not see somebody who's there. But what they did is probably what what most of us would do. I'm afraid. So it's contemporary. Yeah, yeah. And it, for me, if it says the, the fable works, fables work today because it's a, you're challenging me to use my imagination, what if? And uh, with, a, with a story like this, it's what if, and you're now extracted from the situation permanently. Yeah, it's very stark, but it's a, it's a prompt for imagination for me. Uh, and... One more question uh, before we wrap up, and I'll give you the order so you folks get ready. Sarah's coming at you first, and I'll take a crack at it, and Charles and then Bill Hull, you'll get the, the wrap-up. So here's the question. I'm going to return to the scripture, too, for context. How do we deal with the concept or the positioning in this story of a convincing message versus people who cannot be convinced? And let, let me jump to the verses 29 through 31 to remind you. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So the question, Sarah, is how do we deal with the concept of positioning of a convincing message? Because it says, Abraham says, the message is right there. Versus people who cannot be convinced at all. What do you think? Perhaps there are going to be moments when we are messengers. It's not going to be. It's not going to be our our payoff to see the conversion occur. But our job is to still bring the message. Um, you know, I I look at this and I say Moses. Abraham tells. 
<laughs> Lazarus, the rich man, they have the law and the prophets that teach them mercy. And they still fail to learn. And I'm reminded that maybe it's our job to shake the dust off our sandals and move along, which I'm not sure I'm comfortable with, <laughs> but it certainly is inviting because sometimes it's just we let's agree to disagree and I'm going to walk away um, and hope that over time the spirit works on the person or me that needs to be changed. Because sometimes it's me that needs to be changed and not the person to whom I'm conversing. What are your thoughts? Because I find this extravagantly difficult. My my whole family is filled with really, really stubborn, um, determined, self, uh, what's the right word? Um, we perceive ourselves to be correct until proven wrong. And I think that's... Um, maybe indicative of human nature and it manifests itself strongly in our family. Well, since I was very young, I was, I struggled with this last part because it's like the failure all around. What, what can, what's the takeaway? How do I, and I, I go, I have to remind myself like, this is a, this is a God given literary tool for our hearts and minds. And if I accept that includes like accepting the time machine of our imagination which Jesus takes us to, and the decisiveness of the grave. You know, Scrooge, by the way, step three, you've got to confront the fact that in this story, you're already dead. I mean, I'm in all the way on that, and it makes this work. So uh, I, I like in here that Abraham says, I know it makes no difference. I know that. I, I can't really explain why. I just want to note Abraham says, I know the I know the world they live in. There is no apocalypse for them, no. And I just think that's the starkness of the literature. And the reason I think that that's told is, you know, we uh, explain history and storytelling as in the people with the power are the people who win the wars get to tell the story, right? The victors get the story. The victors get the history. The man in purple gets the history, doesn't he? Of course he does. And so we make it stark. He's removed with the chasm, and he gets to see the impact of his story. He got to tell the story, and his brothers get to tell the story, and his family for ages, ages to come, and his community and his household get to tell his story. And the chasm means he doesn't get to fix it. His story is told, he is, and it will be retold and retold. So Abraham goes, they're not going to get it because you didn't exhibit it. Or you know what Charles is talking about, what would you do? He didn't do anything. He didn't change the household. He wants to change his narrative now. Nope. Can't. In the literature, you can't. It's too late. So he has lost control of the narrative of his life completely. I really am attracted to that, that literary power and the apocalypse that he has, which is I did have control over the story of my life, and now I can't change it. That's amazing. And then I'm going back to right emphasize that one of the things that he believes the story is telling is remove all those things, resurrection now. Jesus is present. Jesus, you're looking at him. He's telling you this fable. So in other parts of the gospel, as you write, we say Jesus unravels the scriptures. He tells how he is all those things, like the road to Emmaus. 
He explains the connection. So when we look at the scriptures and what Jesus is saying in this little apocalypse for this fictional person is there, there it is. He's first already in front of you. So I wanted to add that as well. But I'm really attracted to not only is he, he can't rescue him, he's lost control of the narrative, which he did control. He had. Charles, what do you think? Um, I think I've got to step, step aside for just a minute. I'm sorry. No problem. If you'd mute before you do that on your phone, that would be good. Yes, sir. Whatever you're doing. And then you get the last word. What do you think, my friend? <laughs> uh, interesting question. You're, in effect, asking us to focus on, I think, a part of what is Charles is concerned. What about people who don't get it? Okay, let's remind ourselves in Luke's telling who doesn't get it. Last week, under Sarah's helpful guidance, we looked at the first 13 verses of this chapter, the last one of which says, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you cannot serve God and wealth. And then verse 14 and through 18, which the lectionary leaves out, says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed Jesus. So let's remember the context that the way Luke frames this. He is focusing on educated, empowered, religious leaders. Okay? I take a word of warning from that. (laughs) And then Jesus tells this story, this fable of Lazarus. Having said to them, you can't serve God in wealth. Um, I, I, I think, again, what is helpful is to remember that these stories are invited. I think I'm echoing you, Sarah. How, what is, how, where am I in this? And, Don, for the sake of time and for clarity, I want to read the uh, a last portion of a resource put out by Westminster John Knox Press called Connections, a series of commentaries, and I'm quoting from Richard Boltz, a professor at Union Seminary, Richmond. This is how he ends his article. The parable moves towards speech that humanizes those who are disadvantaged, evokes human pathos, and allows listeners to inhabit the kind of narrative space that encourages their participation. For example, asking the question, with whom do we identify in this story, if anyone? Where am I in this story? It, uh, it is also speech that intentionally seeks to provoke further thought and action by way of narrative as well. Wh- what do I do with this? This is part of what makes this parable so powerful and why we return to it so often. It demands continual conversion. (laughs) I like that. Demands continual conversion. It narrates the twists and turns of discipleship in the context of Luke's unfolding narrative of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus faces torment, at the hands of the powerful elite and ultimately vindication by God. I love that way of framing it, that it is a narrative, Don, I think I need to keep dealing with. 
Well, thank you for choosing that reading, Bill. That was great. Uh, I uh, I guess it's time to say goodbye, but I mean, I'm just looking at you, Sarah, just to see if there's anything you wanted to add before we go. We good? Do you see the ironic foreshadowing in verse 31? Lazarus, brothers, brother to Mary and Martha, is raised from the dead, and yet the story is still told. Jesus is raised from the dead, and yet the story is still told. So it makes me consider how hard-hearted humanity is and how how sometimes over time, like in in my journey to Haiti and building a greenhouse, sometimes we don't get to see the end of the story. Sometimes only God gets to see the end of the story. And maybe we should be okay with that. Thank you. Thank you both. And uh, on behalf of Charles Willard, too, we just stepped away. We thank you all for, for listening in or, and viewing if you're watching on Zoom. Palmasia Presbyterian Church makes this possible. It makes it possible for us to all be friends because we came together at Palmasia Presbyterian Church, and they are the sponsor and host of this podcast. They're at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always commend that site to you for great sermons, discussions, prayers, meditations, music, differences of opinion as we delve into the scripture as a family. So check that out as well. And you're always welcome. And we'll see you next time.